Welcome to Keep It 100 Podcast with Sean and Krista Smith. Join us in this space where we take on real issues with real insight and real inspiration. This podcast is for those not looking for temporary relief to change circumstance, but revelation to forever change lives. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Keep It 100 with Sean and Krista Smith. Hey, what's going on everybody? Hey, we're always honored when the Keep It 100 tribe joins us. Thanks for taking time out of your day, listening. We're just really excited with these continued conversations as our heart really is to disciple, to inspire, to empower you in your walk with God. Yes, and we really feel like we've heard so much feedback from so many people that they look forward to our uh, bi-weekly podcast, that this is something that they really feed upon and different ones. It, it really blessed us that at the end of the year, it was their most listened to podcast. So excited. So please continually just keep the word up for us. Tell people about it. Listen, list people to the Keep 100 Tribe. We sure appreciate it. And we're excited about this episode because we're going to talk about the beauty of truth. And we all know that truth is a person, is Jesus. So we talk about the beauty of truth. We're talking about the beauty of Jesus. And it's so important. But before we get into that, uh, Chris and I, this past uh, weekend, we were up in the Pacific Northwest. The first night we flew in on a Friday, Krista spoke Friday night to women. Then I spoke Saturday morning to men. Then I spoke Saturday night at an all church kind of encounter service. And then Krista spoke Sunday morning to the all church Sunday morning, but it was really also an encounter. So it was a phenomenal time. Our great friends up there. And it's so cool because the pastor, John Hammers on this episode, he's going to, we're going to introduce him in just a little bit, but we're, it was such a powerful time. We saw God do so much stuff. What was your favorite aspect? of the encounter weekend up in Everett, Washington? You know what? Um, probably two things if I can pull it in. <laughs> you know, I think whenever I get the opportunity to be with women and call forth women into their destiny, that's always, always, it's an honor, right? I preached on Anna. I've never preached on Anna before. And I felt like God was saying a specific prophetic word over the house. That's always a privilege to release that. But then I'll, I'll say there was two other things that I just thought were really special. Number one, I came in the next morning, you were doing the men's and I was having uh, coffee with Noma, a dear friend of mine who's up there and she was hosting us. And we walked in at the end of your session and there was such a sweet presence of the Lord. I literally felt like crying as soon as I walked in the sanctuary. There was this beautiful presence of the Lord where men were just ministering to one another, getting free, encountering Jesus. And it was just sweet and deep. So I just kind of hung in the back and I just basked in the presence of God. And it was really beautiful. It was just a sweet time in God's presence. And then number three, I preached on Sunday morning and I just went for it. Um, um, just did. release a word, calm them to a place of revival for the Northwest. And I really felt God on it. And I I felt like I saw the church step into a deeper place of freedom and breakthrough. And so when I see a house and a church go, you know what, we're going there. Like there was such a hunger and such a intentionality about the gathering on Sunday. So I know I said three things you asked for one, but hopefully I was quick on that. <laughs> but it was just, it was super powerful. Um, so those are probably my top three. What about you? You know, I'll have to do, it's, it's kind of a tie. And one of them you you, you hit upon is just seeing the men yeah. uh, surrender themselves to God. We talked about purity. Uh, we talked about appetites and obviously contrasting unrighteous appetites from righteous appetites. And so these men came and they were just honest. Yeah. And we called men to purity and men got really honest, repentant of, of areas. And so it was just so honest, to, uh, so awesome to see that. And then my other highlight was Saturday night. We just flowed together. I always love when we flow together. You were prophesying over people. I'm getting mm-hmm. words of knowledge for people. We were seeing people just get free. People mm-hmm. get 
breakthroughs, people get healed. And it's always cool to go back and forth. And we always get great compliments and obviously all glory to God, but just people love the way we flow together. And so I, I never take that for granted. I always love that when we get a chance to flow together. So those are kind of yeah, tied yeah. for my top two spots. I love that, baby. I know when I minister with you, there is a synergy that we hit that's just different than if I'm by myself. And, yes. and I've seen you move powerfully by yourself, but it's just, it's, and you know, we can each move, you know, with the Lord and it's really beautiful, but it, there's something about husband and wife together that really is special. Yes. So that's always such a joy to do that with you. I love that. You know, I'm excited about this episode. Me too. We're talking about one of my favorite things and it's the beauty of Jesus and it's the adoration of his beauty and that he's so worthy, yes. right? Yes. And when you, when you get a glimpse of Jesus and you encounter his, the glory and the beauty and the splendor of God has a major impact on who you are, how you see the world and how you see Jesus. Yes. And I would even throw in there how you influence the world yeah, around you. True. Because it's so important. So before we get to the interview and conversation with Pastor John Hammer, maybe we should just ask a question. Why beauty? Why are we talking about beauty? Why is beauty important to a person's faith? So let me throw that out to you. Let's, let's just throw out some thoughts. Why do you think beauty is important? You know, for me, I am a beauty person. Yes, I always have been, always will be. I remember I received a prophetic word. It was probably in my late twenties and it's probably to date one of my favorite prophetic words I've ever received. And it was from now a dear friend, but at the time I didn't know him. And he prophesied over me, says, you are a woman of beauty and you bring beauty wherever you go. And God has designed you that way. And I had never realized that my desire for beauty and my desire for creation and the world, the atmosphere, even in my home being beautiful actually was a reflection of how God made me to be. And it's actually really, really important to me because it's how God has made me wired to see beauty through him, right? So why beauty? I think the truth is humanity is moved by beauty. Aesthetically, yes. we're moved by beautiful music, True. beautiful paintings, uh, beautiful images. You know, that's why I think so many times some of those people love great photography on social media or a great design or, yes. you know, we. that's why fashion is fashion because yeah. it's more than clothes. It's, it's an expression. There's beauty to it. It's personality. It's creativity. It's artistry. And we love that. We respond to beauty because we were created to admire and adore beauty, right? So instinctually how we're created and God created so us as, in his image is to be drawn to beauty. And so I think it's a natural, it's not a shallow thing. And I think a lot of times in the world, in the church, we can view it as shallow, but it's actually who we're created to be. And I think it's interesting that three times in scripture, it mentions that holiness, which is a primary attribute of God, is considered beautiful, Love right? That. So one of, one of the scriptures, and it says, oh, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. We also can read Psalm 29.2, Psalm 96.9, you know, reading about the beauty of God, which is the holiness of the Lord. And we see that the holiness is beautiful. And so there's a beauty element to who God is, but for us to see him as such, but also the creation of the world. I mean, you know this about me. My, one of my favorite things is the moon. I love the moon. Mm -hmm. I love a good sunset. I love a good sunrise, but I really love a good sunset. And the sky and the, you know, God is the ultimate artist and he is, he's creating masterpieces all around us all the time. So when we take time to bask in the beauty of God's creation, we're basking in the beauty of God. Yes. And I think there is a natural innate desire within us to adore, but also revel and bask in beauty. And it's actually God and it's biblical. I love what you're saying. You're, you're essentially saying, 
saying God created us, if you will, with a beauty appreciation chip. Ooh, it's in our it. DNA. Yeah, that aesthetically, good. I heard you say we are created to be moved by that. And that's the reason why yeah. we gravitate towards it. Mm-hmm. I love that. I would even add on there why, why beauty is important is that I think really at the end of the day, that truth has a hard time making its way to the heart of humanity mm. without beauty. I think that's why the gospel message, the story, when I say the gospel message, I'm not just talking about the do's and don'ts. I'm talking about God sending his only son, dying on a cross, taking the sins, resurrecting. When you look at Jesus would touch lepers and Jesus would heal blind people and raise uh, this woman's son, the widow of names, son from the dead. I think the reason why the, the gospel is written the way it is, it's it, it's full of beauty. And, and I feel like even as ministers, even as the church, we have to make sure that part of the way God designed truth to make it into people's hearts is the beauty of it. Now, it doesn't mean that we're not talking about the demands of the gospel. That doesn't mean we don't call people to repentance. That doesn't mean that we don't get down with the harsh reality of, you know, the Bible talks about judgment to come and all those things, but that we've got to present that aspect because we have the greatest story ever told. There was actually a movie called The Greatest Story Ever Told. It's about (laughs) Jesus. And so I think that those things are so important because we live in a world that has a beauty deficit. And we have to acknowledge that we live in the presence uh, of not just beautiful stuff in the world, but ugly stuff in the world, decaying stuff in the world, the crass, uh, the hideous, the evil, the, the, the stuff that just is repulsive. The world is full of disharmony and disintegration. And so when we're able to bring out that glory in the story, I think another reason why uh, we would say that beauty is so important is that beauty is what clothes the gospel, clothes as in you put on clothes, it clothes the gospel message in a way that makes it attractive. You know, and honestly, I think if we really understand the essence and the biblical truth of beauty is we really have not prized his beauty, God's beauty with anything like the fervor it really deserves. True. I mean, if you look at Isaiah 6 and you think about angels going around the throne of God and they're declaring again and again, holy, 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 which I established, you know, previously, that holiness is beautiful, right? We read that in Psalms and we read that, you know, in various portions of scripture. And it's like, basically the angels are saying, beautiful, beautiful, beautiful are you. And if we understand that celestial beings, angels are declaring for eternity, the beauty of God over and over and over, we do not have a full comprehension of the beauty of his majesty, the beauty of his glory, the beauty of his presence. And I think we, we so compare our earthly examples and we project that as to the def- definition of beauty. Yeah. But we all know what's beautiful here on earth doesn't even come close, doesn't even compare. That's man's version. And here's the truth. Much of what's in the world isn't even actually beautiful. True. Right? What the world defines as beautiful isn't be defined as beautiful in heaven. It's often divine, defined as, uh, you know, vulgar or, uh, you know, offensive to the things of God. Right? right. So yeah. the world cannot create the definition of beauty. Only the beautiful one can create the definition of beautiful. I think this is something God has invited us to unpack throughout our faith walk with him. It's not something we just instantly understand. I think it's through our journey in walking and loving and worshiping and adoring the King of Kings, the great I am. We begin to have a a small understanding of the beauty and the vastness and the depth of God's beauty. Yes, I think that's so true because the point you're 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 aiming at is not.
not everything on the planet that's beautiful is truly eternally right. beautiful. Right. Obviously, Eve in the garden saw that the fruit was beautiful to the eye, good to the eye, but that was hellacious, you know, in terms of once she bit it, we bit the dust. And I tweeted this on, on Twitter because I think it's so important. I said, it is essential that we become fascinated, gripped, and captivated by the beauty of the Lord. If not, we will struggle with boredom and our hearts will be vulnerable to pursue other things. So I think that's what you're saying is that we will pursue inferior, quote unquote, beauty and sacrifice the greater eternal beauty if we're not careful. I love that. Hey, Keep 100 Tribe, right now we're going to step into a conversation that I had with Pastor John Hammer. He pastors Sunrise Christian Center up in Everett, Washington, and we talk about the beauty of truth and the beauty of Jesus. Check this conversation out. I think you're going to enjoy it. Hey, Keep Your 100 Tribe, I've got one of my great friends on, pastor of Sunrise Christian Center up in Everett, Washington, John Hammer. We were just with you, John. So good to have you on the podcast, bro. Oh man, it's great to be with you guys. Uh, my wife, Grace, and I, uh, our, and our whole church, we were rocked as you and Krista came and ministered. So good to see you back to back. Hey, come on, man. I think we switched weather, dude. You, I was yeah. up there with you guys. You had sun. It was clear. It was nice. I came back home to like almost record rains, floodings. Yeah. Man, it is awesome. So one thing, our, our Keep 100 Tribe, they love this segment and this part. Yeah. So John, why don't you give us something about your origin story, man? What has God yeah. done in you that has put this fire, this passion, this visionary, yeah. you know, cross obsession inside of you that I love <laughs> dearly, man? Yeah. Well, I uh, grew up in a really good home. My parents, uh, my dad was radically saved as kind of a hippie drug user. And then he became an evangelist that saw signs, wonders, and miracles. And my mom got saved uh, before uh, they were married. And it just, it, God did a supernatural thing in their lives. And so I grew up in a minister's pastor's home. Um, and when I was growing up, I had a really horrible addiction to pornography through my middle school and high school and early college years. And I had a real radical encounter with the Lord uh, one night when I went out to look for some things I shouldn't have gone to look for. And I was in my parents' basement. I was in community college. I wasn't a little, I was a little uncertain about my future at 20 years old. And uh, anyhow, I had a radical encounter with the Lord that night. I went to my dad and said, dad, I've really been struggling and hiding things. Um, I need you to pray for me. Within that first month, we had a few times of prayer and I was miraculously delivered out of my life, out of my addiction. I learned about the power of confession of sin. And like, I really just got lit on fire for Jesus. I started going to church every chance I could, getting in prayer meetings with older saints, with young people. Like if the church's doors was open or they were having a conference, I'm like, I need Jesus. And so there was this fire lit in me to really pursue the Lord. And I was at this big conference and uh, this church was having in our area. Uh, um, the guest speaker uh, was Marilyn Hickey. And she was like, there's going to be this big prayer line we're going to do at the end. They didn't call it a fire tunnel, but it was similar type thing where all the leaders and pastors and ministers were going to come make this big tunnel. And you're supposed to ask God for one miracle that night or one answer to prayer. What's the one big thing you need from the Lord? And so they were doing like this long, it was like maybe a thousand people there, maybe 1500 people there. So it was, and, and they started on the opposite side of the room 
room from where we were seated. So it was like a line, like this big line. So it's going to take a while. So the guys <laughs> I was with, they leaned over to me and they said, Hey, what are you going to ask God for tonight? And I'm like, I don't know. Um, I, I was kind of drawing a blank and, and one of them said, I know what you're supposed to ask the Lord for. And I said, what's that? And he said, you're supposed to ask God for the mantle that's on your dad's life. You know, which in the Bible is a prophetic, the, the prophet Elijah had a mantle that represented not, it was, it wasn't just like a cloak, right. But it represented his anointing, his history with God, his calling, his authority. It was a sign of, of his spiritual authority. Right. And so he said, you're supposed to ask the, the, the for the mantle that's on your dad's life to fall onto your life. You're called into the ministry like he is. And my other friend leaned over to me and said, that's right. That's what you're supposed to ask God for. You're supposed to ask him for this mantle. It'll be like from Elijah to Elisha. It'll be a double portion of what your dad walks in. And so I doubled over bawling my eyes out. I had this major God encounter. You know, I go from like, I don't know what to ask God for to like, oh, and it just ugly cry, um, you know, and I got home late that night. I was still living in my parents, finishing up community college around this time, or maybe I had just finished and I was on a little bit of a break to figure out what a bachelor's degree would look like or whatever. And I ran to my dad's work the next day after I got work to his office at the church. And I said, dad, um, I need to tell you about what happened last night. And I'm emotional. I start crying. I'm barely getting the story out. And my dad reads through the Bible, two chapters in the Old Testament, one chapter in the New Testament every day. He's done it for like 30, 40 years, a long time of his Christian walk. Um, and so he, uh, he he goes, guess what my Bible reading was this morning in the Old Testament? It was a story in Second Kings about Elijah being carried to heaven and throwing his mantle on Elisha and Elisha receiving a double portion of his mentor, spiritual father. And he's like, son, the Lord is saying, yes, you are called into the ministry. Because up until that point, he had never told me like, you're a preacher, you're a minister, you need to do what I do or anything like that. And he probably knew I would probably rebel if it was pressured <laughs> on me. You know, he's wise, wise father. Um, and so anyhow, I, I knew though that meant going to the ministry. So I went to Seattle Bible College. I got trained, started in youth ministry, started doing conferences, internships, um, evangelism, uh, youth ministry, uh, a combination of things over the years. And then eventually it turned to where uh, the elders and our parents felt like the Lord was saying that, you know, we believe you and Grace will be the next lead pastors of the church. So pray about it. And so for five years, um, just in time for COVID, um, the year before that, uh, we got installed as lead lead pastors. And so we've been on that journey of leading our church and seeing God do some great things uh, throughout the last five years, especially in the last year and a half. We've been seeing an incredible move of the Holy Spirit. And I know you guys have been here a couple of times yes. in that time frame, you and Krista. And uh, so we're, we're in for the ride and the adventure of following Jesus. Um, oh, I love that. Church man. advance. Yeah. Yes. You know, and I'll just say this too, John, number one, you carry a unique fire, man. And I, I, I kind of oh. want to <laughs> talk about that a little bit more. Seriously. I'm, I'm, I'm inspired by it. And at your church, I'm amazed because of how many men hit the altar. A lot of times the churches, yeah. the ladies will hit the altar, but the yeah. unique thing at sunrise is how many men hit the altar and linger. You Come just on. don't see that. I really think that's a sign of a move of God. And, yeah. you know, maybe even later on, you can talk about that. What, why do you think yeah. that so many people that were raised in good Christian families, uh, why do you think that there's such a struggle, a battle? Why do you think there's such a big target on that generation that comes up in Christian homes? I know there are a lot of people that they've got sons and daughters that are prodigals, that are deconstructing, that are addicted, bound, just denying their faith. And why, why do you think there's such a struggle and a battle in that area? Yeah. I mean, everything. Everything's about the family. 
you know, in the word of God, the first institution God created was marriage and family uh, before. I mean, he always had the church in mind. The church was the eternal plan of God, but but he started with family, right, as the paradigm. And so Satan attacks the seed. He attacks the family. He attacks the generations. The dragon at Revelation 12 is sitting at the foot of the woman who's about to give birth to the child, right? So it's always an attack after the young, after our seed, after our offspring. And I think it's a war over generational blessing because if you can start creating, uh, I guess, normalcy in a good in a good sense of like, hey, we serve the Lord. We walk with Jesus. We walk in his ways. We are righteous. Yes, all of our children need to be redeemed and have their own saving faith. But we that our kids walk up, uh, grow up thinking that God answering prayer is normal, that following the ways of scripture are, are normal and fruitful and blessed. And my parents painted a very attractive view of Christianity. I didn't want to do ministry because I thought I could make a lot more money. And I see all the <laughs> suffering my parents put up within the ministry, but it was never because of their hypocrisy or their, um, or them speaking negatively about the ministry. Um, mm. But I saw them love people that hurt them. I saw them stay faithful to their marriage vows. I saw them weep over people, even people that mistreated them or were making horrible choices. I saw them tithe and give offerings. I saw them pray in vacations, pray in money for extra clothes or extra things. And it's not like we were poor or anything, um, but I just saw a life of faithfulness. And they're not perfect. We're not, we were a perfect family. Um, my, Grace and I have four kids. We're not perfect parents, but we're by the grace of God, I think modeling that and living out your faith and not like one version on Sunday, different version in the home. Like that's how we grew up. Their life is attractive. Like they're fun. I think that's one thing that maybe um, like our home, we prayed and read the Bible regularly and that stuff. But like my dad wrestled with us. He tickled us. He like, he made lame dad jokes. You know, he, they spent time with us. They were involved in our sports. They, they're real people. You know, they like to watch movies. They like to go have fun. So like, I can't imagine a more attractive life than somebody that loves their spouse, loves life, loves their kids, trusts God, has integrity, says they're sorry when they screw up, <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> right. and, but there, but there is a war because um, there's such a blessing that comes from the generations uh, being united. Like I think my parent, like my dad, he grew up in an ad- addictive environment. Um, my grandpa turned to alcoholism because he lost uh, my dad's, he lost his wife to a car accident. Mm-hmm. My dad was a little boy and his mom mm-hmm. died in a tragic car accident. Um, and so my grandpa, who was very successful psychologist, he was decorated in the military and in all the who's who lists. And he was a mayor of uh, one of the Seattle suburbs, um, one of the first mayors of the town. Anyway, very influential man. He turned to alcoholism. So anyway, my dad was very broken. So he got radically saved and set on fire for Jesus. They're first generation pioneers and you hear all these great miracles, right? But it seems like there's a battle over that next generation establishing their own story, their own faith. You're right. And that's so accurate. Mm -hmm. And you so nailed something. I think there's this thing that if you have to start all over again, you know, it's like Mm -hmm. if you can stop that blessings that you think of it as a generational snowball, the enemy yeah. is after the momentum of blessing the the synergistic exponential uh, impact of when like you said a father and a son a mother and a daughter generation after generation after generation begin to walk with the lord you know it's like in some respects our kids have to forge their own walk with god but you you see kids that are 
raised uh, in homes of people that are artistically, you know, gifted. You you refer to them as yeah. prodigies. You know, they were raised in a concert pianist home. They were raised. Right. Their dad played in the NBA. Steph Curry, you know, rebound for mm-hmm. for his dad and Vince Carter. You know, when he was up in Toronto, and so that right. just causes that uh, exposure at such a young age to foment uh, a trajectory. And there's so many different things about it, man. I, that's profound. Hey, John, let me yeah. throw another question at you. We were having a okay. conversation in the car and I almost wish yeah. we could have done like the, uh, the, the equivalent of car karaoke, man. It blew right. up. I got so ignited. You mentioned this phrase that I have not been able to let go of. You talked about this phrase, the beauty of truth. And I, I feel like the word beauty and, and if you look at beauty and the aesthetics, how much that is huge in this generation. Obviously, we could see it on a sunset. We could see it at a full moon or a half moon or whatever at night. You could see it looking over the landscape of a city. But this generation is drawn to art. They're drawn. You look at even the social media and what gets kind of the clicks apart from the crazy things is this aesthetic attraction. We're all built by God. If you will, there's this DNA chip within us to have this fascination with beauty because God himself is beautiful. I think one of the early church fathers, uh, they, they talked about kind of this aspect of beauty of being all of it fitting together. I thought that was a unique mm-hmm. terminology. It all fit. And I think of just how yeah. God brings so many great things together, mercy and, and justice and truth and love, and but it just fits mm-hmm. together so well. So man, talk to us about this whole aspect of the beauty of truth. Yeah. The more I study the scriptures and then reading some of the church fathers, um, church history is seeing that there's a, there's a meta narrative, I guess, like the big word or like, uh, like the telos is like philosophers, like what's the, the primary idea, right? Or the, um, the, the main, um, the summum bonum or all these bit, like, what is the main thing? What is the main thing that all of history that, that what is the highest ideal? And in Greek philosophy, um, there was this idea of the logos and even studying like John one, one for Christmas and the incarnation this last year, like, you know, in the beginning was the word and the word was God and the word was with God, you know? And so there's this idea of Jesus is the logos, the word. Um, but I guess sometimes I've thought of, well, he's the, he's the expression of the Bible. And that is absolutely true. But also in Greek philosophy, there was the idea that the logos was like the highest ideal that everything in all of life and philosophy, truth, beauty, the world, the way it all works together. There's some logos, there's some ideal that philosophers were grasping for. So it's possible that John was not just necessarily saying that Jesus is a manifestation of the Bible, although we see that later in John 5, that Jesus is <laughs> the the manifestation of truth of the word, but that also he could have been appealing to the hearts of the philosophers and like the prevailing ideas is that Jesus is the highest ideal. He he is God. He is the, is this the beginning. And so the early fathers called Jesus the word a lot and they call him the logos a lot. Uh, and even maybe more than they call him, I mean, they call him the son of God. They call him, you know, the different names that we see in scripture, but they call him the logos a lot. So just as I've studied the scripture and just different things at different times in my life, it feels like you have these different epiphanies or these eye-opening God encounters. And you're like, wow, that's incredible. And so even in my own story, like seeing Jesus as the interpretive key to the scriptures and to the greater meaning of life. And I guess to me, like the beauty of truth is about understanding who Jesus is, that the highest ideal in all, in God's grand 
grand plan of creation and design and uh, the future for us is all wrapped up into who Jesus is and him coming, him living, him dying, him raising and him returning. And then God's invitation to make humanity uh, share in his nature and become like him. So understanding who Jesus is, is like, I want Morgan Freeman to like be the narrator for my life story. You know, I wish he could like be, have like be over my shoulder and be like, today, John is going to, you know, uh, you just want to have that deep, like that beautiful voice. And there's this soundtrack, right? There's this beautiful score in a movie that just moves you. Like you watch a movie clip without the music in the background, without the symphony or the, maybe it's electronic score, whatever it is, but like the music moves you and there's this connection to the story. And to me, it's like understanding who Jesus is, not just like, oh yeah, this guy that he, yeah, he's God, he died on the cross. Not just believing the basics of who he is, although that's super important, um, but really understanding that Christ is the key to really unlocking everything. He's the highest ideal in all creation. He's the name that's above every name. And so what started to take root in me was I I interpreted the scripture more through my own pain, my own story. Even after I got set free from pornography, I had a lot of self-hatred and shame that had to unravel. And I actually got in a big argument with my dad one day. So I get in this big debate with my dad, like, I'm going to quit. I'm just going to try to like go to church and hopefully make it to heaven when I die. But what if I fall in sin again? What if I get back in porn? Look at all these pastors falling morally. Uh, it's, it's not going to work out for me. Um, why am I even trying? I'm just going to screw everything up again. And so my dad... I'm getting kind of heated. Like I'm done with this. I'm going to quit. And he's like, son, do you believe that the blood of Jesus is enough for you to be forgiven and free of all your sin? Or do you still think there's something else you have to do? And I go, there's got to be something else. And as soon as I said that, I was like, oh no, I just said there's something more powerful than the blood of Jesus that somehow I can do. That's the wrong answer. Like I failed the Bible. (laughs) I failed every test, (laughs) Like you know, but it exposed in that moment, the lie that I believed that I could perform or I could do some ritual or I could repent the right way. Or, I mean, I had so many deliverance sessions, inner healing prayer, prayer counselors, pastors I talked to. I was obsessive about dealing with my shame and my past and making sure there was no demons left. There was no, you know, curses left. Um, And I think the Lord honored my sincerity, but I got over obsessed with me. And then something changed in that moment where I started to realize I've got to see this thing, my life. I've got to see the scripture. I've got to see it through Jesus. Like the curses, the penalties, the warnings, these are all showing me the problem. Jesus is the solution. He's the answer and not in like a a patronizing way or like the cheap Sunday school answer. Like, you know, oh, there's a little fluffy squirrel. Uh, What do you call that kids? Oh, you know, I I think it's a squirrel, but I feel like I'm supposed to say Jesus in church. You know, like, (laughs) like we've almost mocked that Jesus is like always the answer, you know, but it's like, no, but actually at the core of everything. So anyway, trying to, let me see if I can bring this around to the beauty of truth. So as I got obsessed with seeing Jesus through the scripture and I get these key infusions of truth, like uh, one of my Bible school teachers that was an evangelist in Canada and an amazing Bible teacher. And he, he taught and spoke and prayed in King James English. Um, but his spirit filled man, brother Cornish, he would tell us wherever you cut the book, it bleeds the atoning blood. Wherever you cut the book, it bleeds the atoning blood. He's like, you find Christ. And then like my dad would tell me about this contemporary that he, my parents used to host in their home. He was an evangelist, a 
contemporary of uh, Smith Wigglesworth. Um, but he would come and stay in my parents' home because my mom was a good cook. And so I never heard this sermon because I was little, but my it like these things stuck with me that has become, I think, a part of my life message or my obsession, you know, is he, he would preach a sermon in three parts. Uh, the cry of the Old Testament is, where is the Lamb of God? The cry between the Testaments from John the Baptist is, behold, the Lamb of God. And the cry of the New Testament is, worthy is the Lamb of God. And he would summarize the entire Old and New Testaments. He would do the whole grand narrative of Scripture as three movements of, where is the Lamb? Behold the Lamb, and worthy is the Lamb. And so one day I'm reading Revelation 13, and it says that Jesus is the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. First Peter chapter 1 says the same thing, basically, that Jesus, who was slain for us before the foundation of the world. And it starts dawning on me, like the first creative act of God is actually not uh, necessarily let there be light, unless it was all happening simultaneously, in a sense. But the foundational act of God was, I'm going to have to insert myself. God the Son is going to have to insert himself as the Lamb, is going to have to become the incarnate Lamb who is slain for his own creation. So you start realizing there's this beauty to truth, and there's this grand story that's, uh, you know, you get to the very end in Revelation of the Bible, but it tells us about the very beginning. At the foundation of everything is a story. God decided that this beautiful story of redemption. So our world is actually built on the self-sacrificial love of God himself coming to die for us as the lamb who's slain. So as soon as the story starts unfolding in Genesis and mankind sins, we see God's provision to cover Adam and Eve with these garments. And even right before that, that he prophesies, God prophesies, uh, the scripture prophesies (laughs) that there is a seed that is coming, um, you know, that's going to crush the head of the serpent. And so there's a redeemer, there's a seed coming, born a woman. And, And so we start seeing this narrative starts unfolding early in Genesis of this idea of a sacrificial offering, of a needing a need for cleansing, um, a need for a sacrifice, and God starts preparing us for uh, this idea, this reality that Jesus is going to come and he's going to be the sacrificial lamb for us, for our sin. And so everything's built on this idea of Christ's suffering on the cross. And so, of course, ultimately the cross is the full manifestation of his suffering for us, this godless, horrible act, but yet it's beautiful. Like Christians love the cross. We see the beauty, the meaning, the forgiveness, the hope, but we forget because we're 2,000 years removed, you know, from when crucifixion was very popular in the Roman Empire, how brutal and ugly it is. But the reason that we could look at a painting of Jesus on a cross or something and we could weep and we could be very moved by the beauty of his sacrifice for us, it just shows you how significant in history, cosmos, universe, altering the sacrifice of the Lamb of God is for us because we see beauty out of something that's torture, you know, and that's what he came to do. He came to redeem our brutality. So he being the exalted son of God, you know, pre-existent as God before he was born to the Virgin Mary becomes manifest in the flesh for us. And so his humiliation, his becoming human for us was to lead to our exaltation. And then we've got all these promises in the scripture of like, 
Wow. As he is, so are we in this world. First John also says that one day we will be like him for we will see him as he is. And Paul says in Romans 8, those that he uh, justified, he has sanctified and he is also glorified. But yet he's telling us he's sharing his divine nature with us in what he, in one of Peter's epistles, according to these promises that we're going to become like him when we see him, that we're going to be glorified. Um, and it's already done in God's economy. It's already, it's like a past tense you've been glorified, but we know it's a future reality for us. So we're, it all started with the sacrifice of the lamb and his vision for humanity. And for those who are redeemed and trust in Christ is to one day become like him. And of course, to become his bride and to become, become joined to him, uh, forever. But we're to, we're to become like him in the life to come. And so it's, it's like, this is the whole story we're caught up in. Humanity's moving toward, that's why I was like, understanding who Jesus is becomes the key for the scriptures, but also becomes the key to me for the meaning of my life and why I go through suffering and glory, why I go through death and resurrection, why I, you know, lose my life to find my life. Uh, it's like, so it's, it's brought such deep comfort to me and nearness, but I've learned to meditate on truth and understand that the scripture is trying to reveal Jesus to me as according to John five, that's the chief purpose. That's what Jesus said. The chief purpose of scripture was, um, when he was speaking to the religious leaders, you search the scriptures because in them, you think that you have life. The scriptures testify of me, Jesus said, but you weren't willing to come to me to have life in, in my name. And so we're, we're, as we look through the word, I found, I encounter Jesus through the word. I encounter him through the beauty of truth and I find meaning. And I don't want to lose the simplicity of just loving him and always getting caught up necessarily in deep philosophy or theology. Not everybody has to become a theologian or whatever, but we do need to recover, I think, the beauty of truth. And we need to find, we need to start telling the stories, the narrative of scripture and as preachers and teachers of the word to, 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 you know, let people give them, feed them stuff that will cause them to hunger and long to know Jesus more. And because as we, as we get in this book and we encounter the God of the word, as we read the word, you know, there's, I don't know, I just, I feel like some days it's like, there's a soundtrack (laughs) that I'm running on. And I'm like, this is it. This is what I was made for. This is what I was made to bring him glory. And to be with him forever and ever, and then to invite everybody else in on that journey that they might know him and become like him. So anyway, I could just keep going. Man, that was so profound. I I, I was impacted on so many levels of what you're saying. And I, <laughs> I think, you know, when Paul wrote that letter and that that phrase into the church at Corinth, and he says, I'm, a, I'm afraid as Eve was beguiled by the serpent, mm. so you two are being led astray from a pure and simple devotion to Christ. And I, I love because what, what you're talking is you're calling us back. You're calling a church. You're calling the listeners. You're calling people who follow Christ back to the one we really follow. You know, that verse that says he is fairer than the sons of men. And I think in today's age, our, our aesthetics are like, like very low level. Like it's the lowest hanging fruit. We think that if a person has symmetry or they got a couple extra muscles on their body or more curves, mm-hmm. that that is beauty. And, and we don't realize it, that really the altogether otherness, the, the characteristics that, that the very essence of Jesus glory is beautiful and he's glorious. 
you know, there's, there's, there's a weight, uh, there's an attraction, you know, in the natural, the Bible would even give the impression that in the natural, there was nothing that seemed in the physical mm-hmm. appearance of Jesus to stand out. Like right. there's nothing about him that made him like, whoa, this dude is going to be 2024's most sexiest man. You know, obviously right. the, the, the context of history, but yet there had to have been something so fascinating about his eyes. I just think when he could look at a hardened tax collector, Matthew, for instance, you just say two words, follow me. And the dude quit what he's doing and followed Jesus. I thought, what was the look in his eyes when he could walk up on the boat? Obviously, he did the miracle yeah. of the incredible catch, but still these fishermen, and I, I think you brought up the point mm-hmm. that they followed him, not after the bad night and okay, business is not going good. It's time for me to move on. They had the best right. catch of their life and they left <laughs> right. it and went and followed Jesus. Yeah, And I think in this generation, you know, how, how can you begin to put legs on and kind of come on the street of, of maybe a, a Gen Z, a millennial? Like, what is yeah. it that makes Jesus so beautiful, even in a way that maybe they could track with? Right. Well, I think it's because he gives meaning and purpose to your life. And there's not meaning. I think I think art is huge. I think physical beauty is huge to the Lord. And like you said, it's interesting because the Bible says there wasn't something beautiful about, oh, he looks like the most handsome guy. Like, like he's the guy, he's the, he's the one because he just looks so much more physically attractive in the way that, you know, maybe we think of physical attractiveness, right? But, but his eyes, his touch, the way that he loved people, the way that he forgave his enemies, the way he could see past people's barriers. So there's a beauty in people. There's a beauty in Mother Teresa, right? I mean, she wasn't physically beautiful, but almost everybody's attractive to her story. And if people don't, you know, agree to her beliefs about God or mission or theology, they're like, she's spent her life for the poor and she found deeper meaning. And so I think there's something about when we see beautiful art, when we see a beautiful sunset or sunrise, when we see a story like a film um, where there's forgiveness or there's a restoration of father and son, that's good. Or there's the power of blessing demonstrated. That's all a part of God's redemptive truth. And I, I'm not necessarily a proponent of like, you know, search all the religions to try to find any truth that's God's truth. I'm not, I'm not you can get kind of out there on some of that. That, that I think is beyond what's helpful and fruitful in the Christian life. Um, but I think that we've lost at times the reality of uh, how there's a beauty to finding meaning and purpose. And there's a there's like this deep ache and longing in us to be a part of family, to be a part of community, to be, it's because we long to be, to not be alone. And ultimately we long, I think we have a, an eternal longing for God. That sin has corrupted and perverted and we need forgiveness of that. But there's also a deep longing. We're created in God's image. We're created created in um, his likeness. And so uh, that we were made for glory. We were made for beauty. We were made for this world with God. And now there's been this fracture between heaven and earth because of sin, but Christ is the, he's the link to heaven and earth again. He's the, his, again, his, his humiliation is for our exaltation. He came down to lift us up. And so to Gen Z, it's like, he's the meaning you're longing for. He is, he's the ultimate beauty. And the reason you are moved by certain stories of love and compassion by forgiveness, 
forgiveness and redemption, uh, stories of hope. And, and you like, you know, you like these different media things. It's because again, the foundation of the world is a story of of redemptive love. And so anytime anybody taps into that story in a different aspect of that truth, that forgiveness, that reconciliation, it's like your heart comes alive. But if you don't, if you don't really know him as he's revealed in the scriptures to us, then that can get distorted, right? Or that can Mm -hmm. get, um, like you can grab onto one aspect of like justice or one aspect of compassion or one aspect of even truth. Um, that's not, I wouldn't say tempered or balanced, but like well-rounded, that's not full. Like Jesus is the fullness of grace and truth. So there's a fullness in him that, that like appeals for justice and mercy, that appeals for truth and grace, that appeals for, you know, to, to goodness. And, and there's a beauty in that when you get to know him and have a relationship, I know I just, it, it's like everything clicks. It doesn't mean life is easy for sure, <laughs> but to have purpose in suffering, because I was just noticing this, like Jesus said that to his disciples, I must suffer. I must die. And I must be, and I must raise again, basically. But then after that, he says, you must to be my disciple, take up your cross daily, you know, deny yourself and follow me. And so I was like, he, if he must die and then we must take up our cross, then there it's through Jesus alone that we truly find redemptive purpose in suffering. So in the cross and Jesus is the sacrificial lamb, we realize that God understands our suffering and our pain. He understands our temptation and our trials. He understands betrayal and being injustice. And he understands being abused at the hands of others, but he also willingly submitted to it so he could overcome it. It's not that he was a victim, but he understands what victims deal with because he was unjustly treated, right? He did nothing wrong, but yet he endured all this. But then also through the cross, we understand him. We realize in our pain that there's something we we can comfort his heart. We can fellowship with him through the cross because he became like us so we could get to know him. It's, it's, a, it's a very powerful and beautiful reality to realize that when I'm going through hard things, it's really only the Christian story. It's really only the, the story of the suffering lamb, who of course was raised because if he's not raised again and he didn't resurrect, then the cross doesn't have ultimate meaning and purpose and beauty, <laughs> uh, right? But it's, it is beautiful because he conquered death. He conquered the devil. He conquered sin. He conquered hell through the cross, right? So, so I can endure knowing that there is one who co- comforts me, that there's one who's gone before me that perfectly understands what I'm enduring. And to me, that's a, that's a beautiful story. And that what I go through and endure could actually bring glory to God and even heavenly reward to me in the life to come. And so even when things seem unfair, unjust, there is a God, there is our, our Lord and Savior, Jesus, who's coming back as a king and a judge, and he will make all wrong things right. And so he gives, he gives me, he gives perspective for this life and the life to come. That is so good. And I love, John, the way you made the connection. There is such an attraction this generation to redemptive themes. You know, when we were a kid, good guys were the good guys. And I'm older than you. So, I mean, I should put it back back when I was a kid. And then as you were coming up, heroes were heroes and the villains were villains. But now we're seeing villains get redeemed. Like like Loki. Okay, Loki, you're a good guy now. You've been, and we love that. We love that redemptive thing. I mean, Mm -hmm. Hallmark is making money off the fact that we love to see romance 
in the beginning as unlikely as it may appear, but all of a sudden we see that love wins the day. And I think the temptation, if there's a temptation in any of it, is that we get stuck on the echoes, not knowing that they're echoes of a deeper voice that comes from the Lord, that God calls us. There's this, and and, and you you alluded to it, there's a romance of the gospel that we're called to a Mm -hmm. romance. Philosophies begin with man and kind of these philosophers would try to move towards, you know, the known to the unknown, uh, the concrete right. to the abstract, go from man to God. And, mm-hmm. and, and they're ear tickling. They sound good, especially in the day of X, uh, formerly known, artists formerly known as Twitter. Yeah. And those can yeah. get clicks and likes and people are trying to sound super philosophic and et cetera. But the romance of the gospel doesn't begin with man and reach to God. The beauty mm-hmm. of the romance is God reached down to us when we couldn't lift our heads up. We couldn't, we couldn't so much as call on his name. There was not a desire. We were stuck with no way out. And there was only one way God himself had to make that way. And so in those movies where someone rescues someone, they go all out, you mm-hmm. know, taken, you know, uh, yep. <laughs> I've acquired a unique skill set, <laughs> which makes That's me right. particularly Let's dangerous. Go. But there was something about a guy that would do anything to get his daughter back and to make sure she was safe. And all of them are but echoes, man. They're echoes of something that is a voice that cries. Mm-hmm. And and the, the other thing is the Bible says the beauty of this world passes away. And I think we could see it like, you know, hey, maybe this iconic, you know, pinup gal or guy during the 80s now doesn't look like the person you pin up on your wall, right? Okay, so that passed. Yeah. But I, it's so much deeper than just physical age, you know, uh, refining, you know, a person's body, beauty, whatever. Uh, it, it literally is that it is passing. It's fleeting. It's it's yeah. minute. It's a drop in the bucket, you know, that there is a beauty that does not fade. And the Bible refers to that. And I agree with you. I think some of the right now, this disillusionment that leads to whatever, you know, whether it's a narcotic, opioid, uh, yep. drinking, smoking, party and immorality, all of it. I know for me, I was looking for a beauty. At the end of the day, I was looking for a beauty that fulfilled. I was looking for the, yeah. the beauty of truth. And man, when when that one Jesus came in my room and I began, like you said, read the gospels and I, I, I just was struck. There was nothing I wouldn't do for a God that would go that distance for me. And it right. it fomented a passion that I, you know, I I, I think if we're all honest, there's, there's uh, flow and ebbs, but but there's never been a there's never been a U-turn. There's never been a backslide. There's never been a stop uh, because of not because I'm like this super motivated, faithful dude. It's quite the opposite. Is that I just see Jesus and and it's irresistible. There are times when I've wanted to give up ministry, not Jesus. I'm trying, I'm like, oh man, this ministry stops hard, Lord, and sheep bite, Lord, and man, you know, you're trying yeah, to help people right. in this, you know. But I couldn't because I would I would look and just go into a secret place and. People say, well, do you see Jesus? And the, the answer is yes and no. You see him everywhere. Mm-hmm. And particularly in scripture, you see him in creation. You see him. I saw him in the birth of my mm-hmm. son and my daughter. I, I see him in my wife's eyes. I see him in a sunset. And then if you're if you're looking for the temporary, immediate mm-hmm. optical thing that you can lock your eyes on in this world, he's so far beyond that. And yet I did see him and I have seen him. Yeah. You know, that's how I got saved. And that's a whole nother story. Come on. Man, 
in in what ways do you think right now the word of God can become the bridge that can help rescue us from our beauty default? Because obviously it points oh, to man. Jesus, yeah. but in what yeah. way? And you may have answered in some ways, but I'm, I, I recognize there's a lot of people that it's like the Lord is wanting to give them a tune up in this area of getting back in the word, getting back yeah. in the plumb line of scripture and how that can connect them to beauty. Yeah. I mean, um, you know, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God and just continuing to, to read, to listen, to meditate on the word, uh, to listen to good Bible teachers that have a high value for scripture. Um, you know, we, we only know Jesus really through the word. I mean, yes, he can reveal himself supernaturally and visions and dreams and different experiences. And those are all beautiful and valid, important things, but, but he's not known apart from scripture. We only know of him, even from those experiences, we can only judge those experiences and find what is valid from them by coming in line with scripture. So So um, just having an appetite for the word, reading it daily. I'm a big proponent of Bible reading plans and just daily getting in the scripture um, and and listening. And then I think it's like anything. I don't know why um, I never thought of this growing up, but uh, you know, like in martial arts training, which you've been a part of a little bit, like there's kind of a way you learn from a master or a sensei or whatever the different arts call it. Right. But like to learn the, the art, to learn your, to, to maximize your ability, you have to learn what was handed down to you. And like, that's Ooh, what Jude says, so like for once for all, you know, contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So we have this faith that's contained in the scriptures, right? And that the church is preserved through the generation. God has preserved it through his church, through through the generations. And so we're to learn the way and we're to learn the way that's been handed down to us. We're to learn this, the faith, not faith in like have more faith, but like the faith, the body of truth of who Jesus is and of, and of God's holy word, right? So we're to walk this path by studying it, by sitting under teachers and people that are more advanced than us, that have more knowledge and experience and to continue, you know, to see it as a lifelong endeavor. Like I think every time I read through the Bible, I'm, I know more and I learn more and I get more out of it. So it's like, it's okay to start as a novice to not understand half of what you read or maybe more, you know, I mean, there's a lot of days where I'm like, I I don't even remember what I read, but there's plenty (laughs) of days where I do remember and I feast. And even if I don't remember, I remember that I fellowshiped with him and that he was near me as I opened his word and that I was encouraged that day or I was warned that day. And mm-hmm. where I might not, re- like, I might not remember this conversation exactly in a year, but I'll remember the warmth of the fellowship that I had with my friend getting to spend some time with him. And that enriched my life, whether I could remember every line or not. So it's like every time I open the word is a chance to be enriched in my relationship with Christ. And if my goal is fellowship, my goal is to be more like him, to let him have his way in me. And then I keep reading it. Then I find that I start remembering more and I start connecting the dots and I start finding deeper meaning. But that didn't happen overnight. Just like in martial art or in a sport or so good, in any bro. other uh, musical instrument, you you become, a, not that any of us ever masters the Bible, right? <laughs> but you can only become a master and expert by spending thousands of hours, right? Like Malcolm Godwell says an expert is like a 10,000 hours, right? Through his yes. studies. That's how somebody achieves mastery. You know, the, the greatest Bible teachers and expositors, preachers of the word of God, well, they've spent thousands of hours. And so this is a worthy, worthy endeavor. If you spend five, 15 minutes with the Bible, sometime in prayer, you spend an hour a day, right? Over in a year, you might not feel like you've made much progress, but in 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, you're going to have such a richness to share with others. And uh, anyway, so I would just encourage people to start consistently and make it a part of the core part of their life and they won't regret it. Hey, John, I love that, man. You're one of the most pure hearted dudes.
dudes I know. I'm always challenged. I, I oh, think thanks, of that. Man. I think of you and I think of that pure and simple devotion, man. I'm challenged. Hey, what are some things you're doing? How can we follow you? Tell us about your podcast, sure. books, any yeah. anything you're going on, your well, church services. Give us some ways. Sure. We've got some people that are going to love to lock into you and oh, continually drink, drink from the well, man. Yeah. So our church is Sunrise Christian Center, and that's with an O as sun, as the son of God, Sunrise Christian Center. Um, we have a YouTube channel and we have our services, our streams, all our sermons are up there. And then all of my platform stuff for social media is like, it's John and Hammer, like Armand Hammer, J-O-H-N-A-N-D Hammer, H-A-M-M-E-R, like the tool, John and Hammer. And so John and Hammer at Instagram, John and Hammer on X, John and Hammer Facebook. And then actually I do a lot of writing. I have done a lot of writing on Substack. Um, So it's like a combination between a blog and a newsletter. And uh, so John and Hammer dot substack dot com that um, I actually wrote. I just finished in uh, December. I wrote 365 days on the presence of God. And so it's like it's part like experiential, part doctrine, part Bible story, part personal stories. And every day I go through things like who God the Father is for like for weeks, who God the Son is, God the Spirit and how we experience his presence, uh, the Trinity, um, the, the corporate presence of God, the incarnation in the presence of God in December around Christmas time, you know, uh, the cross and the presence, all these different topics. It takes about two minutes usually or so to read through one of these daily devotionals. And Lord willing, it will be a book that comes at the end of 2024 to be released in 2025. But you can go read the whole archive. And I write other on other topics as well from time to time that I send out on cultural issues, doctrine issues, leadership, spirituality stuff. Um, anyway, so that's uh, probably the best place to connect to me is on my Substack. Or, hey, John, uh, bro, sure appreciate that. Love your depth, your passion. It's infectious. Hey, man, thanks oh, for thank stopping by. So Keep much. it 100. We sure love you, bro. And blessing, blessing. Love you guys. Thank, give our love to Krista as well. Will do. And the puppy. Oh, my gosh. Such a good conversation. I love what Pastor John shared. Just that is, rev- that's revelation and just truth. I just, that's just profound. And I, I love that we're talking about a conversation that a lot of people aren't talking about the beauty of God and yet demands your reflection. It demands your contemplation. It demands you to stop, slow down and absorb and recognize the beauty of God that's around you. And let us not miss a daily invitation to adore and enjoy the beauty of God. Thanks so much for tuning into the Keep It 100 podcast. Make sure to rate, review and refer us to your friends and be sure to click that subscribe button so that you're alerted as soon as new episodes drop. Help us get the word out. Share this link on your social media platforms and check us out at seanandkristasmith.com. You can also find us on Facebook at Sean and Krista Smith Ministries. We would love to hear from you on how this podcast has impacted you. So be sure to show us some love. Hey, Keep Your 100 Tribe. Thanks so much for joining us for this exciting episode. Join us on our next episode. And remember, relief may change your circumstance, but a revelation will change you. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Keep It 100 podcast with Sean and Krista Smith. Keep up with us on Facebook and Instagram at seanandkristasmith.com where you can discover more resources. If this podcast has impacted you, please subscribe and review wherever you listen to your podcast. Keep it 100.